Chapter 11, Section 2 of The Promise of American Life by Herbert Crawley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by The Progressing America Project. Chapter 11, Section 2 State Administrative Reform. The foregoing discussion of the means which may be taken to make American local governments more alive to their responsibilities has been confined to the Department of Legislation. The Department of Administration is, however, almost equally important, and some attempt must be made to associate with a reform of the local legislature a reform of the local administration. The questions of administrative efficiency and the best method of obtaining it demand special and detailed consideration. In this case, the conclusions reached will apply as much to the central and municipal as they do to the state administrations but the whole matter of administrative efficiency can be most conveniently discussed in relation to the proper organization of a state government. The false ideas and practices which have caused so much American administrative inefficiency originated in the states and thence infected the central government. On the other hand, the reform of these practices made its first conquests at Washington, and therefore was languidly and indifferently taken over by many of the states. The state politicians have never adopted it in good faith, because real administrative efficiency would, by virtue of the means necessarily taken to accomplish it, undermine the stability of the political machine. The power of the machine can never be broken without a complete reform of our local administrative systems, and the discussion of that reform is more helpful in relation to the state than in relation to the central government. Civil service reform was the first movement of the kind, to make any headway in American politics. Within a few years after the close of the war, it had waxed into an issue which the politicians could not ignore, and while its first substantial triumph was postponed until late in the seventies, it has, on the whole, been more completely accepted than any important reforming idea. It has secured the energetic support of every president during the last twenty-five years. It has received at all events the verbal homage of the two national parties and it can point to affirmative legislation in the great majority of the states. It meets at the present time with practically no open and influential opposition. Nevertheless, the merit system has not met the expectations of its most enthusiastic supporters. Abuses have not been abolished wherever the reform has been introduced, but the abolition of abuses has not made for any marked increase of efficiency. The civil service is still very far from being in a satisfactory condition either in the central, state, or municipal offices. Moreover, the passage of reform laws has not had any appreciable effect upon the viability or the power of the professional politician. The machine has, on the whole, increased rather than diminished in power during the past twenty-five years. Civil service reform is no longer as vigorously opposed as it used to be, because it is no longer feared. The politicians have found that in its ordinary shape, it really does not do them any essential harm. The consequence is that the agitation has drifted to the rear of the American political battle, and fails to excite either the enthusiasm, the enmity, or the interest that it did fifteen years ago. The partial failure has been due to the fact that the reformers merely attacked one of the symptoms of a disease which was more deeply rooted and more virulent than they supposed. They were outraged by the appointment of administrative officials solely as a reward for partisan service, 
and without reference to their qualifications for their official duties, and two means were devised to strike at this abuse. Lower administrative officials were protected in their positions by depriving their superiors of the power of removing them except for cause, and it was provided that new appointments should be made from lists of candidates whose eligibility was guaranteed by their ability to pass examinations in subjects connected with the work of the office. These were undoubtedly steps in a better direction, but they have failed to be effective because the attempt to secure a more meritorious selection of public servants was not applied to higher grades of the service. At the head of every public office was a man who had been appointed or elected, chiefly for partisan reasons, who served only for a short time, who could become familiar with the work of his office, if at all, only slowly, and who, because of his desire to be surrounded by his own henchmen, was the possible enemy of the permanent staff. The civil service laws have been designed, consequently, to a very considerable extent, for the purpose of protecting the subordinates against their chiefs, and that is scarcely to be conceived as a method of organizing administrative employees helpful to administrative efficiency. The chiefs were allowed comparatively little effective authority over their subordinates, and subordinates could not be held to any effective responsibility. A premium was placed upon ordinary routine work which observed carefully all the official forms, but which was calculated with equal care not to task its perpetrators. The American civil service will never be really reformed by the sort of civil service laws which have hitherto been passed, no matter how faithfully those laws may be executed. The only way in which administrative efficiency can be secured is by means of an organization which makes a departmental chief absolutely responsible for energetic work and economical administration in his office, and no such responsibility can exist as long as his subordinates are independent of him. He need not necessarily have the power to discharge his subordinates, except with the consent of a board of inspectors, but he should have the power to promote them to positions of higher responsibility and income, or to degrade them to comparatively insignificant positions. Efficiency cannot be secured in any other way, because no executive official can be held accountable for good work unless his control over his subordinates is effective. So far as the existing civil service laws in city, state, and the United States fail to bestow full responsibility, coupled with sufficient authority upon departmental chiefs, they should be altered, and their alteration should be made part of any plan of constructive reform in the civil service. The responsibility of departmental chiefs and their effective authority over their subordinates necessarily imply changes in the current methods of selecting these officials. The prevailing methods are unwise and chaotic. In some cases they are appointed by the chief executive. In other cases they are elected. But whether appointed or elected, they are selected chiefly for partisan service. They hold office only for a few years. They rarely have any particular qualification for their work. They cannot be expected either to take very much interest in their official duties or use their powers in an efficient manner. To give such temporary officeholders a large measure of authority over their subordinates would mean in the long run that such authority would be used chiefly for political purposes. Administrative efficiency, consequently, can only be secured by the adoption of a method of selecting departmental chiefs, which will tend to make them expert public servants rather than politicians. They must be divorced from political associations. 
they must be emancipated from political vicissitudes. The success of their career must depend exclusively upon the excellence of their departmental work. As long as these public servants are elected, no such result can be expected. The practice of electing the incumbents of subordinate executive positions inevitably invites the evasion of responsibility and the selection of the candidate chiefly for partisan service. When such a man stands for renomination or re-election, his administrative efficiency or inefficiency, unless the latter should chance to be particularly flagrant, does not affect his chances. He is renominated in case he has served his party well, or in case no one else who wants the job has in the meantime served it better. He is re-elected in case his party happens to have kept public confidence. Departmental chiefs can be made responsible for their work only by being subordinated to a chief executive whose duty it is to keep his eye on his subordinates and who is accountable to the people for the efficient conduct of all the administrative offices. The former, consequently, must be selected by appointment, they must be installed in office for an indefinite period, and they must be subject to removal by the chief executive. Those are the terms upon which all private employees serve, and on no other terms will equally efficient results be obtained from public officials. Under a democratic political system there is, of course, no way of absolutely guaranteeing that any method of administrative organization, however excellent in itself, will accomplish the desired and the desirable result. Administrative authority must at some point always originate in an election. The election can delegate power only for a limited period. At the end of the limited period another executive will be chosen, possibly a man representing a wholly different political policy. Such a man will want his immediate advisers to share his political point of view, and it is always possible that in electing him, the voters will make a mistake and choose an incompetent and irresponsible person. An incompetent or disloyal executive could undoubtedly under such a system do much to disorganize the public service. But what will you have? There can be no efficiency without responsibility. There can be no responsibility without authority. The authority and responsibility residing ultimately in the people must be delegated, and it must not be emasculated in the process of delegation. If it is abused, the people should at all events be able to fix the offense and to punish the offender. At present our administration is organized chiefly upon the principle that the executive shall not be permitted to do much good for fear that he will do harm. It ought to be organized on the principle that he shall have full power to do either well or ill, but that if he does do ill, he will have no defense against punishment. The principle is the same as it is in the case of legislative responsibility. If under those conditions the voters should persist in electing incompetent or corrupt executives, they would deserve the sort of government they would get, and would probably in the end be deprived of their vote. A system of local government, designed for concentrating power and responsibility, might, consequently, be shaped along the following general lines. Its core would be a chief executive, elected for a comparatively long term, and subject to recall under certain defined conditions. He would be surrounded by an executive council, similar to the president's cabinet, appointed by himself and consisting of a controller, attorney general, secretary of state, commissioner of public works, and the like. So far, his position would not differ radically from that of the president of the United States, except that he would be subject to recall. 
but he would have the additional power of introducing legislation into a legislative council and in case his proposed legislation were rejected or amended in an inacceptable manner of appealing to the electorate the legislative council would be elected from large districts and if possible by some cumulative system of voting they also might be subject to recall they would have the power dependent on the governor's veto of authorizing the appropriation of public money and also of passing on certain minor classes of legislation closely associated with administrative functions but in relation to all legislation of substantial importance express popular approval would be necessary the chief executive should possess the power of removing any administrative official in the employ of the state and of appointing a successor he would be expected to choose an executive council who agreed with him in all essential matters of public policy just as the president is expected to appoint his cabinet his several councillors would be executive officials responsible for particular departments of the public service but they would exercise their authority through permanent departmental chiefs just as the secretary of war delegates much of his authority to a chief of staff or an english minister to a permanent under-secretary the system could offer no guarantee that the subordinate departmental chiefs would be absolutely permanent but at all events they would not be changed at fixed periods or for irrelevant reasons they would be just as permanent or as transient as the good of the service demanded in so far that is as the system was carried out in good faith they would be experts absolutely the masters of the technical business of the offices and of the abilities and services of their subordinates the weak point in such administrative organization is undoubtedly the relation between the members of the governor's council and their chiefs of staff but there must be a weak link in any organization which seeks to convert the changing views of public policy dependent upon an election into responsible efficient and detailed administrative acts if the system were not accepted in good faith if in the long run it were not carried out by officials who were disinterestedly and intelligently working in the public interest it would be bound to fail but so would any method of political organization this particular plan simply embodies the principle that the way to get good public service out of men is to give them a sufficient chance under the proposed system the only powers possessed by the state executive not now bestowed upon the president of the united states would consist in an express and an effective control over legislation it would be his duty to introduce legislation whenever it was in his opinion desirable and in case his bills were amended to death or rejected it would be his right to appeal to the people he would in addition appoint all state officials except the legislative council and perhaps the judges of the highest court on the other hand he would be limited by the recall and he could not get any important legislative measure on the statute books except after severe technical criticism and express popular consent he could accomplish nothing without the support of public opinion yet he could be held absolutely responsible for the good government of the state a demagogue elected to a position of such power and responsibility might do a great deal of harm but if a democratic political body cannot distinguish between the leadership of able and disinterested men and self-seeking charlatans the loss and perhaps the suffering resulting from their indiscriminate blindness would constitute a desirable means of political education particularly when the demagogue as in the case under consideration 
could not really damage the foundations of the state and the charlatan or the incompetent could be sent into retreat just as soon as exposed the danger not only has a salutary aspect but it seems a small price to pay for the chance thereby afforded for really efficient and responsible government the chief executive when supported by public opinion would become a veritable boss and he would inevitably be the sworn enemy of unofficial bosses who now dominate local politics he would have the power to purify american local politics and this power he would be obliged to use the logic of his whole position would convert him into an enemy of the machine in so far as the machine was using any governmental function for private special or partisan purposes the real boss would destroy the sham bosses and no other means as yet suggested will i believe be sufficient to accomplish such a result after the creation of such a system of local government the power of the professional politician would not last a year longer than the people wanted it to last the governor would control the distribution of all those fruits of the administrative and legislative system upon which the machine has lived there could be no trafficking in offices in public contracts or in legislation and the man who wished to serve the state unofficially would have to do so from disinterested motives moreover the professional politician could not only be destroyed but he would not be needed at present he is needed because of the prodigious amount of business entailed by the multiplicity of elective officials somebody must take charge of this political detail and it has as we have already remarked drifted into the hands of specialists these specialists cannot be expected to serve for nothing their effort to convert their work into a means of support is the source of the greater part of the petty american political corruption and such corruption will persist as long as any real need exists for the men who live upon it the simplest way to dispense with the professional politician is to dispense with the service he performs reduce the number of elective officials under the proposed method of organization the number of elections and the number of men to be elected would be comparatively few the voter would cast his ballot only for his local selectmen or commissioners a governor the justices of the state court of appeals and his federal congressman and executive the professional politician would be left without a profession he would have to pass on his power to men who would be officially designated to rule the people for a limited period and who could not escape full responsibility for their public performances i have said that no less drastic plan of institutional reorganization will be sufficient to accomplish the proposed result and a brief justification must be afforded for this statement it was expected for instance that the secret australian ballot would do much to undermine the power of the professional politician he would be prevented thereby from controlling his followers and in case of electoral trades from delivering the goods well the australian ballot has been adopted more or less completely in the majority of the states and it has undoubtedly made open electoral corruption more difficult and less common than it once was but it has not diminished the personal and partisan allegiance on which the power of the local boss is based and it has done the professional politician as little serious harm as have the civil service laws neither can it be considered an ideal method of balloting for the citizens of a free democracy independent voting and the splitting of tickets is essential to a wholesome expression of public opinion 
but in so far as such independence has to be purchased by secrecy, its ultimate value may be doubted. American politics will never be purified or its general standards improved by an independence which is afraid to come out into the open. And it is curious that with all the current talk about the wholesome effects of publicity, the reformed ballot sends a voter sneaking into a closet in order to perform his primary political duty. If American voters are more independent than they used to be, it is not because they have been protected by the state against the penalties of independence, but because they have been more aroused to more independent thought and action by the intrusion and the discussion of momentous issues. In the long run, that vote which is really useful and significant is the vote cast in the open with a full sense of conviction and responsibility. Another popular reforming device which belongs to the same class and which will fail to accomplish the expected result is the system of direct primaries. It may well be that this device will in the long run merely emphasize the evil which it is intended to abate. It will tend to perpetuate the power of the professional politician by making his services still more necessary. Under it the number of elections will be very much increased, and the amount of political business to be transacted will grow in the same proportion. In one way or another the professional politician will transact this business, and in one way or another he will make it pay. Under a system of direct primaries, the machine could not prevent the nomination of the popular candidate whenever public opinion was aroused. So it is with the existing system. But whenever public interest flags, and it is bound to flag under such an absurd multiplication of elections, and under such a complication of electoral machinery, the politicians can easily nominate their own candidates. Up to date no method has been devised which would prevent them from using their personal followers in the primary elections of both parties. And no such method can be devised without enforcing some comparatively fixed distinction between a Republican and a Democrat, and thus increasing the difficulties of independent voting. In case the number of elective officials were decreased, as has been proposed above, there would be fewer objections to the direct primary. Under the suggested method of organization, each election would become of such importance that public opinion would be awakened, and would be likely to obtain effective expression, and the balloting for the party candidates would arouse as much interest, particularly in the case of the dominant party, as the final election itself. In fact, the danger would be, under such circumstances, that the primaries would arouse too much interest, and that the parties would become divided into embittered and unscrupulous factions. Genuinely patriotic and national parties may exist, but a genuinely patriotic faction within a party would be a plant of much rarer growth. From every point of view, consequently, the direct primary has its doubtful aspects. The device is becoming so popular that it will probably prevail, and as it prevails, it may have the indirect beneficial result of diminishing the number of regular elections, but at bottom it is a clumsy and mechanical device for the selection of party candidates. It is merely one of the many means generated by American political practice for cheapening the ballot. The way to make votes important and effective is not to increase, but to diminish their number. A democracy has no interest in making good government complicated, difficult, and costly. It has, on the contrary, every interest in so simplifying its machinery that only decisive decisions and choices are submitted to the voter. Every interest should be made to arouse his interest and to turn his public spirit to account, 
and for that reason it should not be fatigued by excessive demands and confused by complicated decisions the cost of government in time ability training and energy should not fall upon the followers but upon the leaders and the latter should have every opportunity to make the expenditure pay such is the object of the foregoing suggestions towards reconstruction which radical as they may seem have been suggested chiefly by an examination of the practical conditions of contemporary reform only by the adoption of some such plan can the reformers become something better than perpetual moral protestants who are fighting a battle in which a victory may be less fruitful than defeat as it is they are usually flourishing in the eyes of the american people a flask of virtue which when it is uncorked proves to be filled with oaths of office the reformers must put strong wine into their bottle they must make office-holding worth while by giving to the office-holders the power of effecting substantial public benefits end of chapter eleven section two